Welcome to Acoustic Conversations, everybody. My name is Pete Wright, and uh, I am sitting on the lovely Acoustic Conversations couch at the Acoustic Conversations studio with uh, Kurt Sifford. Kurt, hello. Hey. Happy New Year, man. Happy New Year. It's It's 2010. Mm -hmm. It is 2010. Let me tell you what I learned. The National Association of Grammar, which I think is a real thing, their acronym is NAG, Uh, say that we've been saying two thousand the two thousands all wrong. It really is supposed to be twenty ten, twenty oh nine. Twenty oh nine. Yeah. Like I think, do I like that. Yeah. Think, oh god. No, <laughs> please. Can I jump in? Please. Uh, this is our, this is, our just, this is the uninvited guest. Good, oh, good. Lord, why, who is Hi, that guy at the who piano? Is this? We are we are sitting here thrilled for our first show uh, to welcome Jake Oakenberg. Yada, yada, yada. Now, what would you like to say, Jake? I, I was just thinking we should talk about years and how to you know, pronounce them for the rest of the hour. But the... <laughs> That's fascinating. Is, so, so, that so, when, so I want to point out, if 1862 that year, you wouldn't see, say 1862. You'd no. say 1862. 1862. Mm-hmm. But we've gotten into this whole zero thing, 2008, 2009, and people are fearing that we're going to do this for the next 100 years. Yes. Or at least 90. It, well, that's true. 2000... That's right. It would mess everybody up. But what about the aughts? Back in 1900, they had the aughts. They did. And you know what? I, I think 2009 was much classier than 2010. More old-fashioned. I like it the It was old-fashioned. What do you, where do you stand on the teens? Do you think the teens are going to be interesting for anybody? Or really, are we just looking forward to the Roaring Twenties? Uh, I'm sort of a revisionist. Nice. I'm kind of looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm going to start bootlegging some, you know, back stoop hooch to practice for. Because what were people even doing back in the teens back then? I don't think people were very happy. No, at that they time. were not happy. <laughs> they so. were very depressed. <laughs> when was Gangs of New York? Because I just saw that movie, and those people were violent. generally aggravated. And that's how it was every day, <laughs> in every neighborhood across America. <laughs> See, that is, uh, that's a voice of reason right there. So, Jake Okenberg, thank you. Uh, deep, uh, deepest thanks for joining us on our very first show of whatever season this is, our new season of Acoustic Conversations. Because, um, you know, for many reasons. First of all, rugged good looks, as I think we've covered. Uh, and second, you are only our second piano player. Is this true? This is the this truth. This is true. We've had Lisa Forkish, and you're the first male pianist. Uh, so, Jake Okenberg, you are... Uh, can can we talk f- uh, first about how you decided you wanted to do this whole music thing? Because yes. there was a while where you were, shall we say, dabbling in politics? Fully immersed is probably <laughs> more accurate. Okay. Uh, where did the... Uh, can Just give me a little bit of background. I don't want to spend a whole you know hour talking about your political history, but just how did you end up here? Uh, two loves for my whole life, politics and music. Honestly, when I was five, my parents brought in a upright piano that they had bought from a friend, I think for $700, something like that. And I started playing on it and writing songs at that, at that age. And just within a year or two after that, I was trying my best to figure out what was on the front page of the newspaper at breakfast every day, starting to argue with my dad about issues in first grade. <laughs> he likes to antagonize like that. It's, it's good for, I'm not sure what it's good for, maybe debating. And they've always been dual loves, but at different points in my life, one or the other has popped up and been more present. And definitely during college and right after, it was all about politics. I actually ran for mayor smack dab in the middle of my sophomore year. I took off my spring semester of my sophomore year. Uh, So uh, end of 99, beginning of 2000, January through May of 2000, I ran for mayor of Portland. And uh, 
in the last uh, the last time that uh, Vera Katz ran for mayor for re-election. She was running for the third time. Now, just about that, I'm just curious. Is that something that started off as a lark, um, and then it became bigger? Or <laughs> when, you, when you, in that process was it funny? <laughs> you have you have rephrased the question I probably received the most when I was 19. Uh, Margie Belay, who still writes for the Oregonian, she broke the story in terms of major news, and then it got picked up, and I was on things like the CBS Early Morning Show, and Paul Zahn used to be on Fox News, and mm-hmm. then that was the question that was always asked. What bet did you lose? Yeah. <laughs> what drugs might have you been on? And my answer is really simple. I'm just a dork when it comes to politics. I mean, maybe to, with other things too, but definitely with politics. Anyone will attest, my family, my friends, my girlfriend, I spend hours a day reading about issues, local, state, national, international. I love it. I can't get enough. And here I am as an intern for former Commissioner Eric Sten in the summer of 99, and this mayoral election is coming up the next year, and I'm asking around, so who's going to challenge the mayor? I know there's a lot of ideas that people have, and she's doing a good job in some areas, but there's other areas where people are just ticked off. We want, we want a good debate. And uh, every name of the usual suspects that might jump in, a, uh, a sitting commissioner or a or someone with the county, or, or a business person, or a nonprofit leader, or who knows, someone crazy enough to run against a mayor, they all cross their names off the list. And so I decided that summer of 99 that I was going to run for mayor. No one put me up to it but myself. Hmm. And, and my dad signed on right away. He supported me. My mom took a, a couple weeks of convincing. She, she, wasn't, she wasn't exactly sure... But after I showed her my platform and the website I was building and how I, and how I was going to get volunteers and my campaign plan and how darn dorky serious I was, she she ended up becoming my biggest uh, my biggest volunteer, and I think she knocked on more doors than I did. What about running for mayor and being fully immersed in the political process? Uh, did you learn that has helped you uh, in your burgeoning music career? About everything. Actually, it, it may sound like a silly open-ended question, but in this day and age where less and less people are getting major record contracts, and even when you do, that doesn't guarantee anything, but maybe being in debt for several years and owing a lot of money, you have to do it yourself. It's like a political campaign. It's, it's door-to-door canvassing. It's figuring out some clever, creative way using all sorts of media, from the internet to if you can get on the radio, if you can get on TV, to live appearances, getting getting your message out. It really is true. It's no different. And in fact, as I've seen my friends who have been successful or those who have been close to being successful or at least enjoying themselves, um, some bands that have been signed by major labels, those who have had some success licensing their music, they work at it and they treat it as a job and they treat it really seriously. They enjoy every minute of it, but it's a lifelong campaign. Actually, it's a lot harder maybe than running for mayor because you can't really stop. But mm-hmm. now you have um, you have one EP out. That's your solo EP, um, and that is called uh, Far from Home. Far from Home. Um, Actually, I take that back. That's the first that's single. First it's Find single. Love. Okay, Find Love. Okay, I, I do that all the time. <laughs> to make you rethink uh, naming that EP. I. I should have just gone with the first single, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> Your second is uh, not out yet. No, but, but I brought you an embargoed copy. Oh, you, oh you, wonderful. You, you Much love. You get like, the first press. 
Oh, that's wonderful <laughs> gift. We love those kinds of payola. Uh, yeah, it still huge. exists. It's huge. It's amazing. It's like it's like tickets to New York City in front row at Madison Square Garden, <laughs> except it's a five dollar CD. Not to not to overinflate the point, but <laughs> and then you you are also a, a part of the retrofit. Absolutely. God bless the retrofits. Let's talk a little bit about the retrofits before we kick into a uh, kick into our first song here. How what's your uh, wh- how long have you been with retrofits? Tell us a little bit about that. So the retrofits were in R, a project between my good high school friend George McCleary and myself. We started that in 2002, December 2002. We had just both arrived back from foreign lands, in this case, George from Australia, me from Los Angeles, and we decided to start a group. He played me a song he wrote, I played him a song that I wrote, and we decided it'd be a lot more fun to join forces. And so that's what we've done in earnest since 2002, 2003, playing all around the country, having a great time here in Portland, and basically just doing pop, fun music, acoustic guitar, piano with a backing band. So you are, you're touring actively right now. We are the the, as busy the, as you are. the uh, and then over the last year and a half, it's actually been a transition. The retrofits are still playing, but not nearly as much. Uh, George either has the worst case of writer's block, or just um, actually he writes great songs and then just wants to throw them away all the time. Mm. You, you actually probably know people like this who <laughs> come up with something really nice and then it's like oh, I'm just going to sit on this for another few years. So I've actually been privy to some amazing songs that George has written that he just will not put out into the public sphere. So while we're working on that, I've been writing, continuing to write my own songs and putting them out for people to hear. And, and, and that's where the solo project under my own name, Jake Oakenberg, came. Uh, well, I, I would very much like to hear one of these uh, songs yeah, from the solo project. Uh, so what, uh, what are you going to play for us? Well, this is something that uh, I just posted online. It's called Come Down. It's going to be the first single off my new album. It is off the album out the door. Before it all came down 
Do you have fun writing that one too? Absolutely. Yeah. The the previous album, the one that's out right now, Find Love, uh, was a little more singer-songwriter uh, with um, slower songs, which was purposeful. It was it was about finding love in in all uh, in all sorts of ways, from you know someone special in my own life to how do people just find that at all. Um, because there's a lot of sad things in the world too, and uh, and then you know this album has a couple of those singer songwriter softer songs, but I wanted to put on a, a jazzy up tempo one. I just had to. I had to. That's something I've always had fun with, and I had to get back to my roots. Uh, when you when you write songs like that, do you do you uh, do you conceive of them as a, an arranged tune, like with with the full band, or do you really uh, do you do you write as a as a you know singer piano player? Now I think of arrangements. In fact, almost to the point where, uh, as I've done a couple solo shows in the last few months, it's been tough to make the switch because I played solo on the piano for the first 20 years of my life and then started playing with a band with the retrofits. And with my solo project, I have a full band as well. All the songs are fully orchestrated. And when I play at Jimmy Max and when I'm going to play at the Aladdin soon, we'll, we'll have a full band, six, seven piece. And it, I actually have to reprocess the song when I go back and, and think about how I'm going to do it solo. There's subtle differences, but you can actually get away with a lot more when there's a whole band playing. Now, is that one that, uh, as you were writing it, did it come together quickly, or was this one of the more drawn-out ones as you were writing it? I would say... See, now you're actually asking me to delve into how I write a song. I have no idea how I write a song. I think it was one of these where I was... I usually play around just improv, and... I think one day I was saying, if, if I didn't just start in just straight blues, but I actually did it more kind of gospel style. That, and then all of a sudden I was like, okay, that's the vibe. Yeah. Where do I go from here? But uh, 
there are actually a couple different versions of that song floating around in terms of the chorus. It used to be like this straight-ahead rock song when you got to the chorus with almost a disco, which mm-hmm. was cool. But mm-hmm. then we got into the studio, and we, my, uh, my co-producer, Rob Stroop at 8-Ball, he just said, let's, let's just strip this down, and let's just make it straight, soulful. And uh, I didn't even end up playing piano, and I played a whirly. So okay. it was cool. Since you brought it up, Let's talk about how you uh, how you write your songs in general. And I, I I sort of feel like my my first thought when you said that you know you were talking about find love and those songs were a little bit you know more down tempo and and um, soul searching uh, is that out of intention as uh, as you were building the album or is it out of your some sort of development path that you were on as a songwriter? Yeah. It's an interesting question. I'd say it's a little of both. Uh, Without a doubt, there were a series of quieter, frankly, more depressing songs, like What Goes Up with the following line being being Must Come Down, that didn't make sense for the retrofits, where we were doing up-tempo, breezy acoustic pop rock, just getting people dancing. And I knew until I had an audience, say, sitting having a, a glass of wine in a quiet atmosphere, Jimmy Max, uh, with me at a grand piano, maybe a cellist or a violinist, it wasn't going to make sense. You're, yeah, you're not going to slam them with one of those up-tempo tunes. And so several of the songs had been working their way through m- the musical process for, for several years, um, some cases about five years. The first single off the album, Far From Home, however, was a v- very inspired piece. I actually wrote it for Maggie Brown, who's in the band My Favorite Everything, after her husband, who's a bass player, uh, passed away from cancer at age 30. And uh, that was situational. That was what was in my life, and I wanted to write about it. The, um, the, the whole process of, of turning those sorts of emotions into, uh, into such a public uh, sentiment through music is... is um, sort of heartrending. Uh, how have you learned to deal with uh, feedback and critique on your music as you, as you put those kinds of things out there? Well, luckily I completely separate the two. It, I can write a song that has a lot of meaning behind it, and it still isn't that interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I separate the two. And, and um, one of the things uh, we were talking about before the tape started rolling that I've tried to do is surround myself by a couple people who are writers themselves to give me feedback uh, on the most basics. Uh, you need a bridge in there. It's way too boring. Mm-hmm. Or, wow, you're getting long-winded here. Do you really think people care to listen to you for six minutes on the song? Cut it in half. Basic stuff like that, just so I can get my songwriting more crisp, uh, more catchy. And a lot of times I'll start with a passion draft, which will just be pouring my heart out after something sad or something inspiring. And then... I'll have something 95% done, but the last 5% is what's important, which is chopping the heck out of it uh, in the studio or working with a co-writer or a co-producer, getting it orchestrated much, much tighter. I love that term, passion draft. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, it's yeah. like everybody I talk to, they, they, as they get more involved in the songwriting, they, have, they start to develop their own kind of lingo. language, yeah. you know, their own lingo about, uh, about their process. And that's the first time I heard something like well, that. I, I stole it from my writing background because I studied fiction in uh-huh. college. And that was a term that a professor used, which is before you start editing uh, 
which you have to do over and over again on anything you write, whether it's short fiction or long fiction or poetry or anything, you, you write your passion draft. And for me, writing didn't work because I was incapable of even writing a page without starting to edit myself. But for some reason with music, I can go with it in the moment, get it all out, uh, whatever the emotion is or the emotions that I'm trying to convey, and then record it, listen to it two months later, and begin to more dispassionately start to carve it up, tighten it up if need be. Every once in a while it comes out right the first time, but not very often. Well, one of the things that I'm curious about, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before the first song, is that you must have had a transition point you know, between the politics and getting into the music. And you're doing music full-time at yes. this point, aren't you? Yes. And uh, tell, tell us about that switch. Like, what was going on in your life? What, what made that happen? I'd, I'd like to say it was just a horrible bad breakup or, <laughs> or just I was really disgusted with politics. But honestly... It was, it was neither of those things. It, I actually was working for uh, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden a few years ago, and it was right after his party took back control. So that's the time everyone was trying to run in to work for someone because, oh, wow, you could actually get a bill passed. And I realized that I was having more fun personally. Uh, the office was great. The work was great. It was only going to get more interesting. I was having more fun writing songs and listening to other people's songs. And I thought if there's ever a moment where I can possibly live frugally and explore my music and travel a little bit and listen to a lot of people and get better at this craft, it's now. Mm-hmm. And that's just what hit me. And so I, I left my job. The mm-hmm. giant metaphorical cane comes out and drags you off the political stage. Right. At age 25, age 26, uh, now is the moment. I, I, if, if, I, if I have a family someday or if I just have more than one dog... Uh, it's not that easy to get out and tour. It's not that easy to spend um, hours a day listening to other people's music or meeting with them and getting great ideas if, if you've got other responsibilities. So I did something very self-centered, which was I said, I'm going to just focus all about this one passion that I have right now, and I'm not going to divide it with anything else. Self-centered. I mean, if there's one lesson that comes out of politics, that's the way to get your <laughs> business passed, right? Well, you got to be a little ambitious. <laughs> but uh, And I won't lie that um, there's a beauty behind music, unlike politics, where you always have to get 50% plus one of the electorate. You, you always have to find a way to communicate with the masses. Uh, with music, in fact, it's almost better if you're not trying to dumb things down. Not that that's always done in politics, but frankly, sometimes it is. Uh, it's better if you're trying to find something unique or at least uh, really exciting or at least really meaningful. And heck, if you get 2% of the population in the U.S. alone to like your stuff, you're multi-platinum. So that works for me. <laughs> Let's do another song. Well, I think it would make sense for me to play the first single off of the Fine Love EP, which is Far From Home, the song I wrote for the wonderful Maggie Brown. Everything you want 
everything you need. That's all right by me. When you walk, when you talk, when you cry, when you lie down on my bed, it's a song to me. When you're near, I can hear you breathing. It's clear you're asleep without your fears, and you can't find love, and you can't far from home, far from home. No longer on the run. In June, he left for good. The pain you felt, no one ever should. When you walk, when you talk, when you cry, when you lie down on my bed. It's a song to me. When you're near, I can hear you breathing. It's clear you're asleep without your fears, and you can't. The music video. Oh, was this the was this the first one that this you've is, done? Well, there is a not so hidden retrofits video of Love Letter, which was a silly and fun video that was great. But we did it in a total rush, and uh, I think I look pretty goofy in it. <laughs> I usually look goofy, but I look goofier. But um, this is the first real plan it out work with the. Uh, the film folks in advance, scout out locations, and do something meaningful. And it was fun. It was great. We just released it. Yeah, January. I just noticed January 2nd. For the new year. No, I didn't even realize that it was so... I just felt like I stumbled across it. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully that was purposeful. (laughs) I'm trying to get from two to 200 plays pretty quickly. The, The thing that was neat about that is, to me, the... The, the part that turned out the nicest of the video was this 8mm shooting that we did. Literally, we took this old camera and we did it on film. Mm-hmm. And 
it's actually more expensive to do it that way because you have to take the whole film and go through a telecine process and scan sure. every single frame. And the director, Devin Lyon, from Lyon Films, he wanted to just test this out and see how it looked. And so he just gave us the camera uh, for an afternoon, and we went around Portland on a really ugly day. Actually, I believe it was a year ago in January. We were out on Savi's Island where we're just in mist, and we're going over the St. John's Bridge where it's all fog. Mm. Every once in a while, we'd get a, a little bit of light shooting through. And Maggie, who I wrote the song for, was our, our test subject. We didn't know what, that we'd do anything with it, and then it turned out that it worked great, and it made it in the video. That's very cool. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it is a, a, a really well-done video. What do you, how do you feel about the process of, uh, of turning your music into moving images? Do you feel like, uh, uh, like it captured... Uh, it's not fun for me at all. Really? I, I, I like hiding behind the microphone, and uh, there's something where I feel I can let loose more. But in a video, they had to coax out of me. I'm a, I'm a pretty emphatic and pretty excitable person, but when the cameras were rolling, they actually had to coax me into being a little more animated because... If anything, that seems stunning to me. I, I know. <laughs> Get me started on a political subject, which I won't do now because <laughs> this is about music, and uh, I'd bore everyone anyway. Or, or even talking about music in general, I get really excited. But when the cameras were rolling, I don't know. It was I wanted to dive into the piano at Jimmy Max, or we shot part of it at the house I grew up in, the old upright that I, I started writing the song on. And I just wanted to duck behind that. And, and I was blank with my face most of the time. They needed more expression. So I, I swear they must have had eight hours of, of, of film and only about 10 minutes that, that worked. And our editor found this, Phil Incorvaya. He does cool stuff around, around town. He does some stuff with the live wire folks. And when he got to the footage he realized there was this nice story we were already telling without completely knowing it, which was we have the first scene where it's just me at my piano and we just see the images of Maggie, the, uh, I guess the protagonist in the, in the, in the short film walking around. Uh, and then we meet later on at the jazz club where she's actually in the audience. And at that point I was able to come alive more because the song was for her. I was able to look at her and sing to her. It wasn't just pretending in the camera that, I was speaking to someone who wasn't there. Hmm. The, uh, you say you're trying to get from two to 200 plays pretty quick. What does the music video do for you and your, uh, your music business? Well, I don't, think, I, I don't think I'm putting myself down, but I don't think I'm doing something terribly innovative in my style of music. I mean, at this point in music culture, there are so many sounds, so many genres out there that to me as important to the style of playing, unless you are just the best piano player in your field in jazz or in classical or you name it, it's your ability to tell a story and then get that story out there. And if you look in politics, the campaigns that do well are people who create a narrative around what they're doing. Obviously, a big one last year was change, but it could be about their humble upbringing or that we need you know, a government that's more about the family or something. People create a narrative. Well, with my music, I, I do have a narrative. It's stories from my life and stories that have meant something to me. And to me, the music is that vehicle, and I have to now work to get it out to people. The video helps doing that. 
And in fact, it helps doing that more than just if you heard a 30 second clip with no context. Mm -hmm. I think these songs become a lot more meaningful when you know they're about someone dying of cancer and that they've moved from rural Missouri to Portland with their band. And now they see that potentially imploding. What do you do? And uh, when you get that backstory behind it, I think it packs a little more punch. One of the things that's been interesting about the show is that we've had a bunch of different people come in and they've all been at different stages of their musical career. And one of the things that's been fascinating to me is not only hearing um, how their definition of musical success is different from each other, but also how their own definition of musical success has changed as their career has gone on. And so I, I guess I'm curious, you know, like, uh, what kind of things are you doing musically right now that uh, feel comfortable to you? What kind of things feel like it would be like the next big step for you? And wh where, where do you want to go? I mean, not to get through job interviewish here, but... Uh... <laughs> what are you doing with your life, right, Jacob? Exactly. <laughs> I see here you've recorded this. Uh, wow, that's a big question. Um, well, let me dive into it from this standpoint. I just read a great summation of the, the last 10 years by one of the music editors at New York Times. And he talked about the 2000s, how unless you had a running start with some major label backing you when, when CD sales weren't massively decreasing, or you found a way um, to get people's attention during the 80s or 90s or even before, uh, a lot of 2000 was about starting that process of do-it-yourself. And frankly, getting back, he used the term getting back to the musical troubadour, the way it's always been, touring, mm -hmm. having something to say in a live environment. That is the one thing that really you can't completely replicate else, uh, any, anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that's one of the things that the singer-songwriter and the music, musician still has is playing something live, telling a story. And for me... I've been really fortunate that the Portland community has been very supportive of my music. So on one hand, we've had great success with the retrofits and now my solo project and having people come to our shows, selling out the Doug Fur, uh, selling out smaller venues. And there's been great people around town like Thomas Lauderdale from Pink Martini, who had a you know very young point in my music career, allowed me to open for him at the Crystal Ballroom for a sold out show. Hmm. And those things are great. But at the same time, as most of the people you interview will tell you, we're not making a dime off mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And so the fun question for me, and it is fun because we're all entrepreneurs, is how can you keep doing your passion and make a little money off of it? And I love the notion of the, the musician troubadour going around telling their story, playing their music. And there's at no point in my career would I see that as ever being over. Mm -hmm. I hope to get better technically, get better in terms of telling my story, get better in terms of the people I involve myself with musically uh, every every year. And so I don't really know where I am in that. To me, it's just this ever continuing line up that where you try and progress and try and learn and really have a good time. Does, was that way too ephemeral? Was that way too like, <laughs> no, philosophical? Fine. No, <laughs> I, you know, I, I particularly resonate with the fact that you use the word entrepreneur. I think that's the first time anybody has come on the show and actually said the word. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those concepts that you get back to the fact that you are running a business and this is the start of your music empire. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's sort of how I, I look at it. Like this is, you know, from here to, 
you know, your estate in the Palisades uh, or your next guest shot as a judge on, uh, you know, that singing the show. Right? The sing-off. <laughs> ben Folds doing the sing-off. <laughs> well, and the cool thing about this business, you used to, um, even 10 years ago, a lot of people really look, were looking for that one big break where, oh gosh, that A&R person will put me in front of the president at so-and-so records and I'll get this huge advance and then I'll be famous and then I'll be a musician for the rest of my life. Well, even those people who had had those kind of breaks will tell you that that's not exactly yeah. how... You may have gotten famous, <laughs> but you were still broke. Right. right. And, <laughs> bankrupt. And, and don't or... get me wrong. I would love to play stadiums. I mm-hmm. would love to sell 100,000 records, let alone 10,000. But what I would love to do more is have a great following and be able to make this my lifelong pursuit. And if you start looking in those terms, which I think most musicians are, all of a sudden you're thinking about, how can I get 200 people to every show? Mm-hmm. Which is a lot, but it would if you could get 200 or 300 people at you know several metro areas uh, on the West Coast and build it from there, if you can start getting a loyal following, then then there might be something you could build yourself. No, no, no small business person is going to try and create something overnight. It just doesn't work that way. The, the, it's so rare that you have that hit product that is big worldwide overnight. Why would you think that way with your music? And once you take a step back and are more about the journey you're taking, which again, I'm getting all ephemeral, mm-hmm. it's really fun and it's not a big freak out fest in terms of the, what I'm trying to try to do. Sounds like you're shooting for success is sustainability. Yes. Is that fair? Yes. That is a really nice way of putting what I just rambled about for the last <laughs> 10 minutes. There you, you go. You ramble poetically, Jake. Mm-hmm. I, it's a, a joy to hear you talk about it. it um, let's do another song. Well, here's a, a quick one. Uh, my grandpa passed away last year. So as I mentioned, the album is dedicated to Baxter. It's also dedicated to my grandpa who uh, in his high school yearbook wrote that he wanted to be a blues singer. And he never got to be. He actually worked on the docks in the Todd shipyards in Seattle and uh, worked really hard for his family and ended up going to Boeing and doing accounting and, and was just the nicest grandpa anyone could have, but always let me sing on the car rides with him. And so when he passed away, I, um, um, I wanted to write a song for him. been stuck down twisted up and pounded out watching in front of me the last thing I don't want to be and I'll turn around and walk about now cause there's nothing left but final breaths now And you will see the part of me that never could come out And I'll turn around and hold you now And I want you to be someone else If only for a day But there isn't anybody else 
whose part you could ever play. And I'll turn around, walk about now. Cause there's nothing left but final breaths now. And you will see the part of me that never could come out. And I'll turn around and hold you now. And I'll turn around and hold you now. And I'll turn around and hold you now. That's beautiful. Very nice. That's, That's a beautiful. Nice, yeah. So, uh, Skip Von Kuske, a great cellist who plays, has his own own solo project and plays with the Portland Cello Project, joined me in the studio on that song. And uh, and I just love how it turned out. Hmm. That is beautiful. That's one of those songs where I like playing it solo, but I love it with the strings yeah. and a yeah. little, little slide guitar. Mm-hmm. What sort of tools do you use on a day-to-day basis to, to develop your your uh, uh, your business plan to get your music out there. I mean, what are you sh- what are you shooting for tactically without giving away the farm? I don't know how much is No. I mean, I discuss this topic with friends, musicians, competitors. There's no real competitors in music though cuz it's not a zero sum game. That's the cool mm-hmm. thing. I people sometimes I think get jealous when there's another I've seen this from a couple of musicians especially who get caught up doing the LA thing. Uh, or even the New York City thing, where they're really trying to be in an entertainment area, getting signed or getting the right management or the right uh, entertainment attorney. But good God, if you're in Portland, why wouldn't you be happy? I mean, anywhere for that matter, if someone else figures out some really cool way to get their music exposed. There is plenty of people, there are plenty of people in the world who want to hear music and more music. So uh, no trade secrets here. The... The biggest thing, I think, is getting more precise about the Internet. Uh, people thought it'd be the Holy Grail for if it would just expose work to the masses. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and now there's a, a whole bunch of music out there. And so it becomes questions of how do you filter it? How do you trust what you hear? And I actually think having 100 fans on Facebook is more important than having 10,000 fans on MySpace, for example. Why so? Because... Uh, Facebook started off, in its pure sense, as social networking. Uh, Friend to friend, college student to college student, actually, when it truly started. So it was used more about, uh, here's this cool photo, or here's where I am right now, or uh, here's what I'm doing tonight. And just a way to keep track of what friends think. Trusted circles. MySpace quickly spun out of control, and it was whoever will add you, who -hmm. can have the coolest picture, the silliest thing, uh, how many plays, including how many plays can you find a computer program to generate for you mm-hmm. without it actually being meaningful. And I quickly learned that I would send out to 5,000 people on the retrofits list and we'd have two people show up mm-hmm. at a show. Or you have 100 friends on Facebook that are actually friends who know you through a circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, 80 of them show up. And 80 of them show up, absolutely. So to me, it's getting more and more precise about uh, what the circle is, uh, how they know you, um, how they've heard your music. And, uh, for instance, 
just in the last few days with the music video, people who know Maggie Brown might know her from her other bands had the chance to see that video and then hear what my music was about. That to me is a lot more meaningful than, ooh, add me and overinflate my my online friends. Mm-hmm. So getting really precise about uh, the internet and how you use it is is my big not-so-secret plan. And I think a lot of people are trying to do that. Okay, so uh, in a not unrelated question, how does your business plan drive your ability to create music or drive the decisions you make in your songwriting? So I spoke about the passion draft. At that point, it doesn't at all. I will pour out whatever emotion, anger, excitement, uh, musical thought I have at the moment, and that's where it'll go. And I'll do a quick taping of it onto my built-in microphone on my MacBook. And that's where it goes. The business side comes in when I think about what five songs could I put on an album or what single could I try and push to get in a film. Uh, and then, then the commercial side clicks in. Or the best thing yet, what song did I write completely from a passion standpoint because it meant something to me but could connect in something else? I'm trying to get a song I wrote about my dog dying onto a film that I heard that is being made about a dog. So there, I wrote it when I was really, really sad about our great dog Baxter. Actually, I dedicated this next album to him. Oh, that's great. Um, and, uh, but at some point, if it, if it found its way into a, a film that was about a dog, there you go. Sweet there, redemption, Baxter. Sweet redemption. There you go. Then you then you get the emotion and the commercial success. So, uh, that that's how it works. I'm. You seem you like a very focused, a very focused guy to me. And uh, you mean anal? <laughs> <laughs> is this instinctive, or um, is this something that you've had to you've had to work at a lot? Uh, you know, like um, you know. I'm trying to think of another way to put it. Like, what sort of tools do you use to keep yourself organized? I mean, are we, like... we going to get into like date books? And well, I'd like stuff? to. I'd like to start talking about your your song list on on a the back of an old business card. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's awful. No, uh, it's be- it's a beautiful and organic use of the tools. So this is always this may be the tension between the politics and the the music. I have always had the left brain, I believe, right? You know, creativity, kind of emotional response, uh, get really excited or upset about it. And that's where a lot of just going for it music comes from. And then I've had this side of me that is just the ridiculous guy that wants to read boring articles on some topic, Mm. um, write a summary of it, even though I don't have to turn in a paper for any class or something like this. <laughs> I don't know. They're both part of me. My siblings can attest to it. They love me and probably are annoyed by me constantly. I, not probably, I know. That's just how I am. And I just try and be honest. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but but it doesn't, that doesn't quite get to the question of motivation. And that is, I think, something that I, I'm really interested in. As a songwriter, when you are, you know, as focused as you might be or be working to be on building your business and and working toward the house in the Palisades. What do you do? It would be a house in the West Hills, like in the West. Art Alexander <laughs> okay. said. All right. How, what do you do to you know wake up every day uh, and not be um, sort of 
prey to the whimsies of inspiration and actually create. So two quick thoughts. One, I'm naturally driven. I, I, people asked me after I ran for mayor at 19, like, would you ever run again? Potentially, yes. I stopped trying to be coy about that. I, I, I'm, I am ambitious. I am driven. I love to get out there and try, try things. The beauty about channeling that with music is to me, it's a completely open landscape where I get to create a lot of the path myself. And so that excitement is almost intrinsic where you wake up every day and you think about, okay, I wrote this song or I have this piece of a song. What am I going to do with it? When am I going to finish it? Who will play on it with me? What genre do I want to ultimately make it? And then how the heck am I going to get anyone to listen to it? So you're working through those details as you're, as you're creating these tunes. Absolutely. That's what you have going on yeah. in your head. To me, it's really exciting. I mean, the, the thought of um, playing, playing a song and having it work on stage so that other people feel something or at least just nod their head and enjoy it, that, that really gets me excited in a big way. But um, I should be really clear. It's not, as it, it's not if there's 1,000 people in the audience. It's if there's 20 people or 200 in the audience who are really enjoying it. So it's... it's you know, unlike this politics thing where it's all about numbers, 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 to me it's about getting people excited uh, and how can I do that. But I'm not as caught up in it's, it's got to be like this commercial sellout thing. You have toured now, uh, what do I understand, 50 cities you've hit at least around the world. How do you, how do you gear up? for uh, for uh, touring for for and hitting the stage and getting your songs ready to perform and getting your head ready to perform what do you do well the cool thing about this stage of my career except for a couple big shows in portland and a few lucky breaks here and there most of the time you're talking about small venues which is which is the life of a, of a new songwriter and which means one of two things. You're either going to really get to make a connection with someone because there's not going to be that many people there right. <laughs> or all eyes will be on you or they're not going to be listening at all. The thing that I've done to prepare actually is less than any emotional piece or any practicing. It's knowing the venue ahead of time. So if we are going into a situation where it's a bar-like atmosphere, I make sure I'm not going solo and I make sure I'm not trying to do the songs about someone passing away. I'm going to, I mean, honest, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, I may throw something in there later once I've captured someone's attention, but I'm going to rock out mm -hmm, and sure. I'm going to bring the, I'm going to bring my drummer and my bass player and we're going to have some fun. And that's actually the best thing that I've done for myself is as I've toured with the retrofits and then solo is realizing what I'm getting into before I go. And there's been a couple times where I've said, I'm not doing this solo. It just won't make sense. No one's going to listen to me. It's going to be awful. And there's been a few times where I'm like, it's not worth bringing the whole band for this type of small, intimate venue. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest thing that I do to get ready before I go. When we did one tour with the Retrofits about two years ago, we hit 20 cities in 24 days. And we did 10,000 miles. It was crazy. But we still did a great job of getting on the internet and finding the images and figuring out what kind of venues we were going into beforehand and tailoring our sets uh, accordingly. 
prudent lessons from the road, man. <laughs> so let's do another song. Well, one of the themes on my new album called Out the Door, and this song is called Out the Door. It's it's how I named the album is about trust. I was not a relationship guy for many years. Like my longest dating was maybe like a month, that kind of thing. I was more into my music and politics, right? <laughs> I just couldn't, you know, find a nice person. But uh I've been in this great relationship for two and a half years, but as I see uh, uh, people get divorced, as I see people have unhappy relationships, as I see people try and have happy relationships, I just, this whole idea of trust came out. And so there's two songs on the new album. One uh, is called Some Things Keep, and then another is called Out the Door, and both both are about trust and relationships. Set to a poppy tempo. Something is different now It's separated somehow I know you knew it couldn't last long La-di-da, la-di-da His words are nothing more La-di-da, la-di-da We've heard it all before I'm not heading that way for sure Now have learned, oh yeah You can't love with one foot out the door Out the door Something is parallel now Exact same rules in a new house I know you knew it was the old song La-di-da, la-di-da His words are nothing more La-di-da, la-di-da We've heard it all Out the door. 
Outstanding. Very nice. Out the door from the new album by the same name. Uh, That's a tough one to play. It seems <laughs> it, man. That was a workout. This is this weird tempo that I add in like an extra 2-2. Two, two. It's like, uh, you know, you can count a fifth beat in there. It's like... It's like, okay. You're just trying to hurt yourself when you're trying to hurt my drummer. Like you got some yeah. interesting stuff in there. I mean, like the phrases, you got five bar phrases and some of the verse. It's, I, it's really fun. I'm very excited. Actually, maybe in conjunction when this podcast, when this, uh, this uh, internet broadcast goes out, I may post that song with the full drums and full orchestration because it's, it's kind of over the top in a good way. Nice. Very looking, nice. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, I get the feeling uh, as we wind down the show that you... Uh, th- there isn't really a song Jake and uh, real world Jake. Uh, you know, the the dramatic Jake that you write songs about, the Jake in your head who wears a fedora and carries a whip. Uh, <laughs> That's actually, uh, yeah, what all my songs are. <laughs> <laughs> There's a song about, you know, about poor Baxter, but you were wearing a fedora and carrying a whip at the time. Uh-oh. Well, I, you know, I, is, is there a, uh, do you discern a difference when you're writing songs about stories of your life as somebody who does so? No. For some people, they express themselves, uh, through a blog, uh, or they'll, they have no problem about twittering their life to someone, everyone, mm-hmm. or, uh, spilling their guts over beers. For me, it's, uh, music. That's where I, share the most pressing things on my mind. Jake Okenberg, musical Twitterer. <laughs> yes. Another new phrase. We have I... a new tag. Uh, Jake, what does 2010 hold for you? Where, where, where will we find you throughout this year? Any big projects we have? Uh, we've got, obviously, new music coming out. So I'm releasing the new album, Out the Door, at the Aladdin Theater on Saturday, February 13th, which is going to be great. Another person you've had on the show before, Justin Jude, is going to be our special guest opener. And, and then another great band, Echo Hellstrom, is going to release a CD that night as well. And they're orchestral rock, is what they call themselves. And so it's going to be a really fun night. And I'm going to try and get back up to Seattle to play a couple small shows. I did that last year. And I was just down in the Bay Area. And I'm going to be back there in July and hopefully this April to L.A. So I am hoping for uh, a little West Coast tour, maybe a couple of them and more more songwriting. Well, this is this has been a great conversation. We we really deeply thank you for uh, for hanging out with us for the last hour and and sharing a bit of your musical insights and experience. And I say thank you. Seriously, this is great. I love it. You've had great artists on and it's an uh, honor to be uh, be here and play some songs for you guys. Well, thank you we very truly much. We appreciate that. We're uh, hoping to keep it going. We we <laughs> we are hoping mm-hmm. oh, at least through January. We will <laughs> Yes, I just made it in. Just, <laughs> Uh, we, where can you find us, Kurt? Where would you, if you were a, uh, an internet uh, wanderer, where would you go to find a show Well, like there are this? a variety of places. I mean, you can come to AcousticConversations.com. We will always have our most recent episode um, up on the front page, uh, highlighted by uh, Mr. Wright's photography. And um, we, you can always find us through iTunes. Um, if you search for Acoustic Conversations on iTunes, you'll find our podcast there where you can subscribe and you can also drop us a star rating, preferably a higher one, the higher range, and give us a positive review. That'll help other people discover the show as well. And finally, uh, we have a very well-used Twitter feed. Uh, no, no, we don't. We have a Twitter feed. 
but I, you know, I do want to take a step back on on the the mechanics of the show. It's the first show of the new year. Let's go ahead and and you know talk a little bit about how we how we do the songs. So if you just go to iTunes and you subscribe to the show, you will be able to download every episode we've done. And for the most recent three episodes, you will also get the uh, individual tracks at a higher bitrate, at that fancy iTunes Plus bitrate. So you get the highest quality of the music you hear in the show, plus some exclusive tracks that we record after the show. That's if you are a subscriber to uh, to the podcast. Uh, you will be notified uh, of those tracks if you are a member of our uh, uh, Facebook group or if you just subscribe to our mailing list, which you can find on our website, again, at AcousticConversations.com. And we also do tweet when uh, when we have shows when you know when we remember we we tweak that we'll try to we get should better we at should that. be better at that <laughs> collectively we should be better at that uh, does that make sense did that make sense that made perfect sense Pete Jake anything else you'd like to plug or uh, <laughs> while we're no. plugging no nothing I uh, um, uh, Kurt thank you so much for again hosting in uh, studio uh, acoustic conversations absolutely here. my red couch looks forward to it every week and uh, on behalf of uh, Dr. Siffert and myself Pete Wright thank you so much for listening and downloading and we'll be with you again next time on acoustic conversations dot com <laughs> <laughs>